You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Bea Basso is a freelance dramaturg and translator. She came to the U.S. in 2000. She translates from Italian to English and English to Italian. Thank you for joining me, Bea. My pleasure. Bea, let's talk a little bit about the basics of the translation experience. What was your first job as a translator? What were you asked to do? So my first job as a translator happened by chance. I was interviewing someone at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in Ashland for an Italian publication. And in talking to the artistic director there, Libby Apple, at the time, that was 2001, I happened to find out that they were going to produce Eduardo de Filippo's Saturday, Sunday, Monday, a play that is by one of the most important Italian playwrights. And as we were talking, they said that they were looking for to do a new translation, as some of the translations they'd read were either quite British in tone or sort of not muscular enough, not new enough, and especially just sounding quite English. And so one thing led to the other, and before I knew it, I was asked to co-translate this play, Sabato, Domenica e Lunedì, originally, a 1959 play, with Linda Alper, who is an actress and also a writer, and she's part of the company up in Ashland at Oregon Shakespeare Festival. So we started this process of translating together. Now, once you started this process of translating, tell us a little bit about, you know, your your day-to-day work. You, they hand you a work in Italian. Now, it was, was this a play you were familiar with? It was an author I was fam- very familiar with because he's quite big in Italy, but it was not a play I'd ever seen uh, or even read in school. So I was unfamiliar with it. And also, Eduardo de Filippo is from Naples, so very entrenched in the south of Italy. And I'm from near Venice, Asolo near Venice. So uh, as you might know, if you know Italy, every region in Italy is so dramatically different, the dialect, the customs, the food. And um, it was interesting to me that I was considered this Italian expert in general, to cure, you know, up in Ashland. But in fact, it's from within. It's so dramatically different. It's almost funny that a Venetian translator would be asked to do an Eduardo de Filippo play, which is so Neapolitan. But anyway, I welcomed the challenge, to be honest. And um, I, I just sort of delved into it not feeling like an expert at all, precisely for this reason. So feeling more like I had to discover the the world of this 1959 Italian family that fights and makes up and makes ragu sauce in this and that way. You know, the way of making it in the South is a little different than the North, all little things like that. So at first, that was my task, a lot of research. And I felt particularly pressured to be prepared because I was considered the Italian expert who, in our team, you know, with Linda and I, I would be the one to know about all things Italian, which is not true. As you know, <laughs> there are so many nuances and, and, and different traditions. And even depending on how you grew up and how your family is, let alone if you're from different regions. Um, so the research was my first daily task. And, uh, 
Um, and then after that, I started to, well, I read some other work by De Filippo, and then I delved into the play, um, basically producing a literal translation. So daily I would wake up and just work at my computer and translate chunks of the text and often, very often, stopping, not just because I couldn't find the right English-American correspondent, but because I sometimes didn't know what a word was because Eduardo de Filippo uses so much Neapolitan dialect. And it's an old dialect by now. It's from the late 50s. So not even my Neapolitan friends would always know. They would have to ask their grandmothers. <laughs> and so that happened several times. And then, of course, I quickly learned in my daily um, struggles and delights as a translator that there is no such thing as a literal translation. By nature of choosing one word rather than another, you in some way influence the next step. And so it was interesting because you always associate the idea of a literal translation as an objective first step, where it's really the text just transposed literally to a new language. And quickly I found out that's simply not the case. And so in the second phase of our work, my co-translator and I, she's of course American, would often go back to the Italian together and see when something that had already been translated was potentially misleading for the whole arc of the play or whether instead it was, you know, just on the right track, but maybe we needed a different synonym and and that sort of thing. So it's also very, very detailed work. You can start with a broad vision of how you'd like the play to sound, of how you'd like it to be received or the effect you would like it to have. But then it's really, it becomes more of a um, detailed work that almost goes line by line. And the more you know the characters, the more you can um, go in inside the Italian syntax and the way they express themselves and find a correspondent that's lively and agile in American English, but also faithful enough. You know, these playwrights you can trust, <laughs> mostly. Um, it sounds like it, the translation, at least from the Italian, is a two, and translations in general are a two- or three-step process because you're, trans, you're translating from the time when the play was written to the time you're, per, you're performing it. And also in Italian, you have this uh, regional differences. Yes. Could you talk about, do you, as a, as a translator, did you translate from the Neapolitan to the Venetian Italian uh, first and then go to English? Or was, there, was it direct from one to the other, uh, from direct into English? Yes. Once I figured out certain special words that were completely incomprehensible to me, I would go, th there is something called standard Italian, which mm -hmm. is what we use in literature, let's say, you know, the Dante Italian. Sure. So um, I would go from the Neapolitan to mentally directly to, um, I mean, mentally through the standard Italian, but then into the English. It, it was interesting because Saturday, Sunday, Monday in particular was a mixture. It wasn't all written in Italian or in Neapolitan. Some characters, usually the lower class characters, would speak in Neapolitan dialect. And then the younger generation or the more cultured people would attempt to or speak proper Italian. So it was also very interesting to try 
and understand how to convey those differences into American English. Well, well there, that brings up a whole really interesting point, the idea of translating a culture, because you're not just translating the language, you're translating a culture, and as you say, family relations in Italy and in different parts of Italy may be perceived very differently than they are in America. Absolutely. I remember when I read a translation of this very play, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, that was British, and the relationship between the mistress of the house and the maid was very was made much more polite. And the, the reality is that in Italy, you when you have a real familiarity with someone who helps you in the maintaining of the household, you can be quite direct and almost rude sounding to them without meaning disrespect. It's, or, it's almost like it's really a cultural thing. You can also be rude to your own children or to your own parents as um, in truth demonstration of caring. <laughs> you know, um, there are many cultures where that's the case, but definitely in Italy. It's true. And I remember that one of the efforts Linda and I made was to try and retain that spark, that almost rudeness between the two, <laughs> and and make it work so that it wouldn't sound inappropriate or politically incorrect completely to an American audience of, you know, modern day Ashland, um, Oregon, but but that it would still have the spirit of that. But to answer more broadly to your question, it's really true that the the linguistic translation, especially for theater, is only the first step of a translation process. And um, that was my big discovery when entering rehearsals. All of a sudden, I was a dramaturg and a translator of gestures, traditions, customs, ways of behaving, even how many kisses do you give to people when you enter a room, do you just, you know, the greeting system and all that. And I have to say that in that first translation, um, now that I have the luxury of time to look back to it, we almost erred on the um, Italianness of it. I think we, we, we were quite concerned about showing that it was Italy and it was an Italian family and this is how we behave and so forth. So we favored in some ways the representation of the Italian world. Now, that particular play is quite light and comedic and has folkloric elements, so it, it could sustain it. But it was interesting a few years later when I was asked uh, to join the very same company um, for another translation of um, Napoli Milionaria by the same author, Eduardo de Filippo. In that case, um, which was a different strategy or a different result simply happened, by by virtue of getting more confident that these characters could be universal without necessarily having to overstress the Italianness of it. So in the first case, we had a lot of um, Italian words left in oh, Italian, left in, left in the American, in uh, Italian, in, in the origin, in the translation. Yes, yes. So with the greetings, the names of places, um, even some expressions, some adjectives that couldn't have a precise American correspondent, we left in the original Italian. It was a, a big experiment, sort of a bold and interesting experiment that ultimately I think worked for that play. But it was interesting years later with a, with a play by the same author, but with much darker tones because it was about World War, World War II and, and a more sort of a poorer and rougher situation. It simply happened that 
we just felt confident these characters could tell their own story. And we could be very, very specific still that in some ways makes for universality, but without necessarily having to insert or sprinkle in um, the Italian. Tell us a little bit about the role of a, of a dramaturg. It's a word I'm unfamiliar with, and it's a role within the uh, uh, world of, of plays that, I, that I've never understood. It was a word I was unfamiliar with when I moved to the States, and I just happened to have studied things in, in the Italian university that, you know, was theater and classics and sort of subjects that actually lended themselves to this kind of fairly new profession in America, which is the dramaturg is someone who takes care or cares about the text, first and foremost. That can mean many different things. So for once, you are in charge of the research, the literary, historical, philosophical, economical research um, and background of a certain play. And then you're responsible for bringing that research into the rehearsal room and share it with the director and the actors and creating usually a packet that's almost a, a booklet of, of information. And the information cannot be generally academic or, or simply general. It Typically, to be good dramaturgy, it has to somehow speak to the, the, that specific director's concept of the play. So you're so as a dramaturg, you have to talk to the the director and yes. understand what their vision is. Correct. Then go consult, do research in the original language and in the original culture, and consult the text, and then you create a document that goes to the rest to the director and the rest of the play. That's correct. It's it's also true that it's done for any play, American, English, classic. New. It's not just when it's an unfamiliar mm -hmm. context. It's really um, a new function that was once covered by the director, the designers, and so forth. And now it's there's this new figure. And also, a dramaturg is typically responsible, especially if working within a theater, like I did at Long Wharf Theater in New Haven, Connecticut, for finding new plays, um, reading. You know, it's almost talent scouting of of these new American writers or, you know, world writers. But it's it's really a process of discovery that for me was completely new. The new American playwriting scene was new to me when I started working in the American theater as my background was in the classics. But I have to say that those four years at Long Wharf Theater were quite a discovery in, in that sense, in finding these beautiful new works by very young writers too. And in fact, one of my next steps as a translator will be to, um, if they let me, <laughs> to translate some of these new works, American new works, into Italian and bring them to Italy. Well, that now that's an interesting reversal for you. Yes. Um, because you're yeah. not, as from, if you just came to the United States eight years ago, you're not as intimately familiar with United States culture as you are with Italian. Could you talk about doing the background research to understand all the cultural implications? It's a it's a real uh, role flip for you, isn't it? It is. It, let's say that typically it's easier to translate into your own language. So in, in many ways, I did the opposite of the opposite. I started by translating or co-translating, especially at the beginning, into Italian. Sorry, into English, um, which was 
harder. Oh, okay. Yes. Interesting. And so now, however, now I've spent enough years in the United States working inside the English language that it will be very <laughs> interesting to see whether to translate back into Italian will feel hard in a, in a new kind of a way um, because you know how it is, you know, the, the familiarity with the language can go away. The language is such a vibrant, lively um, organism that as soon as you step out of it, you start losing little bits and pieces. You know, even just youth jargon can escape you really quickly if you're out of your country for even a couple of years. So uh, I have this sensation that as my English got better and better throughout this decade, my Italian just sort of is coming down to to meet it is getting a little worse um but that said um you can also look at it this is a, a sad way of looking at it you can also look at it as the um both languages are sort of living within me and both cultures and uh it's it's true that it definitely took me a while to get inside um american culture but it's also true that with the arts and reading plays for example um there is something almost immediately universal about a beautiful art that really transcends specificity of time and place i believe so to be able to recognize the beautiful plays um hasn't been a tortury or long process it's it's been quite um present and, and rewarding, and um, it came to me, I would say. I wonder, could you talk about, once you've translated a play uh, from Italian into English, and let, let's talk uh, specifically uh, about La Familia del Antiquario, which you si. just had translated for Shakespeare Santa Cruz. It's the first English translation. Now, there's a couple of things uh, about that play. First is that it's in a genre that, that is, I think, quite well understood in Italy, but is com I, completely unknown in America. So describe that genre of play uh, that consists of somewhat improvised scenes, if I, yes. if I understand it correctly. Yes. That play, La Familia dell'Antiquario, which we translated as The Antiquarian's Family, is by uh, Carlo Goldoni, who's uh, a... 17th century, um, 18th century, sorry, Italian playwright. And he's from Venice. So in that sense, it felt like going home. Um, but t time wise, it's very far away. And he is, he really is sort of an innovator within the system called Commedia dell'arte, where Yes, there were stock characters and somewhat improvised scenarios, and the actors would um, would sort of use those as a starting point and then be imaginative and be improvisational. Carlo Goldoni used the those traditions and those characters, but that's his big revolution. He infused them with um, with new life, or more specifically, with real behaviors, with uh, more psychological complications. And also, he put the playwright, and in a way himself, at the center by, by eliminating some of the improvisational nature of the Commedia dell'arte and just writing basically more set plays, like 
we know them now. But he really sort of went in and out or his revolution took a while. And in any case, he owes a big debt to the Commedia dell'arte. So in this case, when we did it here at Shakespeare Santa Cruz with the intern company, it was in the interest of the director to try and use one of the typical aspects of commedia, which are the masks, but in a more deconstructed revolutionary sense, just like Goldoni had done throughout his career. So the masks are real masks or ways of covering the heart of these characters. And when throughout the play, they they reach a point of, of self-discovery or something like that, the mask comes down or there is the temptation to take it down. So there is a whole game with, with the mask that really I didn't know would happen. It's always so fascinating translating for theater that you're at your desk translating on your computer. It's a completely solitary act like most writing acts are. And then all of a sudden you share this piece of writing in a rehearsal room and the actors and the director and the designers bring to it unexpected elements and uh, um, obviously make it much more alive and create a dialogue between the text and and what they're doing so that actually what they're doing affects the text. I made so many changes in the text based on how they were um, working without forgetting the, the third and maybe most important element in a translation process that is the audience. So the audience, of course, affects tremendously what or simply responds in genuine ways. They, you know, we always think about audiences as really having no agendas other than in enjoying themselves or, you know, responding with their heart to, to what they're seeing and with their minds. And so th at the end, when we did two performances after the second one, I learned again a whole new level of how I could make this translation even better based on the audience's response. It's, um, it's really, in theater, it's an unforgiving art, the art of translating, precisely because actors have to embody, embody it and then audiences have to receive it. And, um, but it's also um, very lively and, and you get disattached from your own choices. I, at least I, it happened to me fairly quickly. It's, it's more about what works, what really what works on stage. You know, you said earlier, you made a comment that I thought was really interesting, um, that you would you could start translating something and then you would find that you might, by tran the translation of one word could change the arc of a play. And, and I think that's a really interesting concept. Could you talk about some place where that maybe had happened to you and you had to go back and re-write re, uh, stuff, revise something by virtue of changing, you know, maybe not just maybe more than a single word, but, you know, a phrase or, or a perception or a cultural translation. Mm, yes. There are so many examples like that, and it's always hard to, to think about um, specifics. I'll give you a very small, little small thing, and then I'll think of something broader. But I remember in Saturday, Sunday, Monday, uh, at one point, there is a fairly pretentious character, this older uh, single aunt um, with lots of opinion who um, who likes to show off her culture and her internationalism. And at one point in the Italian, she says, 
you know, come upstairs in my balcony. Uh, I'll offer you a drink. And drink is the only word that's actually in English. And it was very unusual for an Italian woman in the early 60s um, or late 50s to know an English word in that way. It was clearly a show off. So what's the choice there? For example, do you retain drink? But then it just seems very banal and usual translated in, into English. So we decided, for example, to translate that into cognac and just make it so depart from the, the original um, and even choose another language, the French, to give in the American translation an idea of pretentiousness. There are countless examples like that and, and sort of continuous choices that can either favor the original or the audience to which it's directed. Uh, for example, we had a lot of debate in La Familia del Antiquario on how to retain the money. There were so many different um, coins used at the time, from Scudi to Zecchini to Ducati, and all are mentioned. And in the end, there was a complete chaos of, you know, what is two Zecchini? Is it less than two Scudi? Is it, it was a real dramaturgical investigation, first of all, to try and find out the different things. Um, but then we ultimately found that maybe it wasn't earning us anything to maintain all these different measures, when in fact, the audience was probably not able to receive mathematically, <laughs> you know, the, the whole, all the differences. And so we, we found a middle way, which wasn't to transform those um, nomenclatures for, for, for money into dollars or, you know, uh, bucks. <laughs> but rather, we just condensed it to one measure that was scudi. And so then the audience had the chance, because of the context and how the the actors were delivering the lines to know more or less that 20,000 scudi was probably a big amount of money and five scudi that someone offers to make a dress was too little to make a dress and, and stuff like that. Well, now that's really fascinating. Uh, one of the things you did was to translate a, a novel by Pirandello into a theatrical work. A and that's a very, that's a, two type, very different types of translation. Talk about the first type, which is translating a novel into a play, and then, then t t take us through the language translation. Yes, it, uh, it was, yeah, that's, that's an adaptation, mm -hmm. um, it, it, really, with a big A, because it starts absolutely from a novel that, in that case, it was, it's such a seminal novel. It's Pirandello's Uno Nessuno Centomila, which is, sometimes translated with uh, one, no one, 100,000. It's about the, the myriad of faces and masks, <laughs> again, that we put on ourselves um, in modern life so that we can be perceived as one or um, nobody or in 1,000 different versions depending on who's seen us. So that really, I grew up with that book. And um, the first difficulty in trying to to transform it, not only for from Italian into English, but from the page to the stage, was that I many many things were so embedded philosophically and culturally in me. This idea of how you there is no one truth that it, but but it wasn't implicit in in an American 
tradition where, in fact, there is the belief in the pursuit of the one truth, I think, at least that's my perception. It, in itself, you know, the concept of, of the book itself was not directly accessible. So that was the first challenge. And then, really, this, this opportunity of doing it came about because of, of a fortuitous encounter with an Italian-Argentinian director adapter Nestor Sayed he gave us me uh, he gave me and Marco Baricelli who's the artistic director of Shakespeare Santa Cruz and also my partner um, he gave us the um, the idea of transforming it into English and he had already adapted the book into an Italian theatrical adaptation so we use that a lot and we owe him in terms of what he had already chosen for the stage but then of course we needed anyway to go back to the novel and see bits that he might have eliminated but that actually were quite useful or would simply work very well in this new context in America and it's really a process of uh, choice of choosing there are so many things that when you go inside of work and you start knowing a work intimately that you get attached to and it was more a process of let go than anything else it was a process of saying you know what this is all valuable it's pirandello it's written very beautifully but guess what we have to choose and be selective and that happened with with not with a single criteria at all, but definitely with um, uh, the idea of choosing things that could be stageable. And in Pirandello, you have, in one sense, a gift, and in the other sense, a difficulty. The, the gift is that he was a dramatist himself, and many of his short novels especially um, became plays later on. But his, the difficulty is that he was a fairly philosophical intellectual kind of playwright and so it's in, it, and so the difficulty is in trying to, to to keep the blood boiling and not just having philosophical concepts and that sort of thing so it, it it's been you know it it was a challenge in that way in trying to keep it bright and fresh and theatrical um whereas for the other two playwrights Goldoni and De Filippo in both cases, they were men of the theater completely. And so they would go more easily for a laugh or for or even just sort of their their skill in having people come in and out of the stage. You know, the choreography of their pieces is automatically very, very theatrical. They were both um, inside theater companies, the Filippo in particular. You come up with a text and you print this text out and give it to the to the actors, and, and I've got to guess that when you hear them say the words, that you immediately want to start going back and changing them. Could you talk about that process and, and how you do that? And are, are, do you do you sit at the plays and with your pen in hand, striking through words and scribbling? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> um, it, this is a, a very interesting process for me in that. When you first give the script to the actors, it's probably the moment when you're most attached to the work you've created. And so you're almost, you know, a, a defensor of your own script. And then I tend to sit in rehearsals quite a bit, especially at the beginning, um, both as a dramaturg and as a translator of my own work. And uh, 
always I found that as much as you can be attached to an idea or to your own work in this case, it's always more interesting to keep it open and keep it flexible because you don't know what you're going to get back once you... Once the room is filled with the freedom for everybody to contribute and express themselves. Of course, it's very hierarchical. There is the director and there is typically the writer or the translator. But it's still, in, in my way of thinking anyway, the more collaborative the process, the better the play can get. Because it's really, I think, a mistake to consider a translation a text. It's mo- it's a play. It needs to become a play. And for a play to live... You know, it's it's all about this synergy between all the, the the collaborators and all the artists. And, you know, I remember in Ashland, for example, we even had read-throughs before the actual beginning of rehearsals. And in between the read-throughs, Linda and I would change many, many things, even shorten and cut whole scenes that suddenly we didn't need anymore. You know, the story was already full and telling itself and there was a repetition that might have worked in the original but somehow in a more concise language like like English is didn't anymore so um, there are all sorts of cuts and changes that happen right there and then and sometimes even how an actor reads especially if they're you know good experienced actors they may read a sentence that you've intended in one way but they even put a little pause and I will always remember this example of when there was this sentence, if nobody wants to cook, I'll do it. I'll do it tomorrow. That was how we translated it. It was what it was in Italian, pretty much. This wonderful actress um, in Ashland, um, Eileen de Sandre, she put a, while doing it already on her feet, she put an ellipsis before tomorrow so that it would read, if nobody wants to cook, I'll do it tomorrow. <laughs> she, which of course gave it made perfect ca- sense for that character who's the cognac character who's really not someone who wants to cook um, so this is really a small very tiny example but it's um, you know it, it's just to say that I'm more interested in opening the room up and what you get back that said there are also many many instances when instead I am I have a strong feeling about a certain word or expression and in that case, I just, you know, I, I try and really see that the actor and the director try and, and make it work before giving it up. And then if it doesn't or if an audience clearly is not receiving it, then, of course, there needs to be change. I want to say that sometimes I'm there with with paper and pen. Some other times I'm there, I'm there with my computer still, especially at the beginning. And some other times I don't want towards, you know, the later phases, I don't want the text in my hands at all. But I'd just rather receive it as it is. And, you know, if a cut happens, and I haven't even realized that it has, that's probably a sign that we can do without it. (laughs) Now, this brings up something that never occurred to me. I guess that as a translator, you feel free to cut scenes and, and change the text in ways that are pretty substantial. Uh, when you do that, don't you feel a little bit of trepidation? Don't you you think that you know Pirandello might show up and say, "Hey, hey that, <laughs> Not that, that. supposed to be the thing." <laughs> yes. Well, I'll tell you the basic b- big difference is that when an author is either still living or the estate is still 
functioning, like in the case of Eduardo de Filippo, you'd better be careful of that. We had to send the translation in for approval to the estate because mm-hmm. he, he only died in 84. So in that case, um, and, and actually we had a dialogue with his then widow, uh, who's now dead, about certain things that she disagreed with. Um, really? So that's one extreme, yes. And then the other extreme is, of course, in 18th century playwright where there is there are no rights issues and you can literally turn the play on its head that's just legally then on the moral or yes let's call it the moral scale of my own ethics as a translator I really really believe that in the end the playwright was most concerned with the good of their own play and nobody no Italian author would want their play translated clunkly into another language and just just so it's faithful and really specific to the line. Um, I believe that all play, playwrights probably they desire for their plays to keep being alive. And, and in order to do that, because of times changing and because of a different location and type of audience, I think you're bound, you owe it to them to, to make it as alive and possible, changes included. Um, Then, of course, there are differences. You know, sometimes you adapt something more dramatically and even modernize things. Um, Some other times you just want to keep it closer to the original and and sort of let um, uh, let it be what it was meant to be. But even that is such shifty territory. I, I ultimately go back to... The ba- to the fact that any translation is a balancing act and you you can choose to have a completely source-oriented approach where you want to stick to the original as much as possible or you can choose to instead go away from it and really make it target-oriented towards so that the audience, the modern audience, can receive it. But those are somewhat arbitrary decisions if you just do them once and for all. I believe much more in the negotiation between those two extremes, and that's the balancing act. Now, you're working on something for the San Francisco Ballet. Uh, tell us about that. That's, a, that's again, uh, yet another form of translation into motion. That's such a, a good way of, of looking at it. Yes, I'm part of this project that's called the Tosca Project, and it's a collaboration between ACT the theater in San Francisco, and the San Francisco Ballet, yes. So it's a mixture of actors and these dancers. And together, we are creating a work that takes place in Tosca Cafe, that's sort of the bar, the landmark bar in North Beach from the 20s, intermingling also the opera by Puccini, from which the bar took the name. And it's definitely, we've just, we're just in the middle of workshops and the play won't be ready until 2010 it seems but it's it's definitely an exploration that starts rather than starting from the text it's an exploration that starts from the body and it's quite amazing to see how these dancers and actors are able to intuitively go to distances and imagined situation just by the use of their body and you know with the help of music and some found text that actually is in the form of interviews that has been collected over the years. And the challenge in that case, I believe, is in uh, in sort of creating structure without superimposing structure. 
so that you let the organic process of, of these movements and music and text happen without pre-structuring it, but also not letting it completely go in all sorts of direction where you don't have a heart or you don't have a central event or story. So, I have to ask, there are lots of tools online if one wants to translate, uh, to use computers to translate language. And, and I'm wondering, as a translator, do you, do you avail yourself of those tools? It seems like it might be a good way to just drag and drop, you know, a, an entire first scene into one of these things and give you kind of a quick hack. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I've tried once uh, for fun. Uh, I, I don't remember, not for a, for a literal or for a literary translation at all, for something else that I couldn't understand. It was in other languages. But it's, no, it's it's very risky. <laughs> because again, it's especially in theater, it's all about context. And so to just have the words even translated accurately, but separately one from the other, is not a good idea, I don't think. <laughs> for traveling, it's useful. <laughs> <laughs> You're you're looking at translating some some of these new American plays, Itamar Moses, Noah, Noah Heidel, and Sarah Rule. Could you talk about those works? Did you choose to translate those works yourself, or were you contracted to? And no, this is just my my next idea of a project. It's not yet it's not yet fixed, and I haven't yet decided exactly how these American writers could be represented and performed in Italy, for example, or in, in Europe. And some of them have have already been. But yes, in, in being at the Long Wharf, I did discover some favorites of mine. And it's my wish, really, at this point to to talk to them. Some of them are, are now friends. And, and just, and Julia Cho is another one that comes to mind. Also, Will Eno, Glenn Berger, wonderful voices that most of all, I was just shocked that work of this kind and of this level really is not readily accessible to audiences overseas and it isn't I think because there isn't enough money set aside for translation and for cultural exchanges I don't want to be critical of America because but I think one issue America has is still its um, insularity. And whereas many efforts are now being made for external work to access America, artistically I'm talking about, there is less, there's been less of an effort for American work, I think, to reach other shores. And I'd love to be part of that process. Just to give the different face of America also to Europe, to show them that it's not all about politics or, you know, the, the news that reach, that have been reaching them in the last eight years, which some of them have not <laughs> been so great. <laughs> so it's like the soul of America to me is in the artists. And why not share that? That's a fantastic idea. Now, uh, a as a translator, do you have a mechanism for starting things happening in, for example, Venice, your, your hometown? I mean, you, you're presumably talking to these playwrights and, and making first stabs of translating the plays. As a dramaturg, I guess, are you now starting to be active in Italy? I'm, I'm, I want to. I'm starting to. This is my new... You're talking more about the future than the present. I haven't yet put everything in motion, but I do have enough contacts in Italy, also in Rome in particular, where I imagine some of this might find 
resonance. There, there is enough thirst, I think. And already some institutions, um, like one near Florence called La Limonaia, where this kind of project is welcome or has started to happen. So I'm thinking of contacting those institutions just to get the support and then enter a real dialogue with these writers I love or, you know, start with a couple probably and get into this new challenge of going back from English into my original language. Now, you, you came here in 2000. Was that right out of college or would had you been working as a translator back then? No, not at all. I was still at the University of Padua in Italy, and I was in the process of writing my thesis on an American author, Eugene O'Neill. So I came to Berkeley, UC Berkeley, to finish writing it. That was my introduction to American theater, because while I was finishing up my thesis, I entered a dialogue with the ACT. I was taking acting classes there, actually, and they we're going to produce a Pirandello play, already translated by Richard Nelson, a wonderful American playwright. And they needed someone like me, a sort of associate dramaturg, to help go back to the original and compare and contrast and answer questions in case they were not clear in the translation and so forth. And then I thought I would stay here for a year. And here I am 10 years later. Well, we're, we're happy to have you. I've been speaking with Bea Basso. She's a Freelance translator and dramaturg, thank you for joining me, Bea. Thank you. It was fun. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.